I'm Liz Gunn, and a very warm welcome to today's show with Gangaji. Ten years ago, I walked into a hall in Sydney on a friend's casual recommendation. You know, Liz, she said to me, all this counselling work you're doing to improve your marriage, to reconcile your anger and, and hurts from that childhood, that alcoholic mother, why don't you just try a different path? Why don't you meet me tonight at the introductory evening for Gangaji and hear what she has to say about like all this ongoing suffering you're doing. Who's Gangaji, I said. That's what we're investigating today, along with many other things. And if you stay with this show, and I hope you do, by the end, I think you will feel as excited about a different kind of future as I felt that decade ago. So I showed up that night. I showed up to a packed Sydney hall with what I can only describe as a presence. That's the only way I can really do justice to Gangaji, and you'll hear that as we go through this next hour. There she was on stage, not a high stage, very, very welcoming, very much at, at my level, as lost as I was at that, in that era of my life. She was calm, she was gentle voiced, she was broadly smiling a lot of the time, she had a delicious laugh that you wanted to hear more of. She was open hearted, she was a loving presence at a time that I desperately needed love in my life. With people like me going up, she was relaxed, she was open. It's that Māori beautiful idea of a korero, a discussion that's based in respect and listening and offering, offering a very gentle guidance, a very gentle opening, but connecting all the way through with where that person who is expressing their pain, our pain, we all have had it, we've all known it. She was connecting with where each of us was. I remember feeling mesmerised as I left that hall. I didn't quite understand what I'd seen then, but I was mesmerised. I was mesmerised enough that I, I wanted to go back and I went back several other years when she visited Sydney. Mesmerised really by the idea that there is another whole way to approach life instead of wrestling with it as I was, instead of battling it, instead of fighting with how life is showing up and how I thought it should be showing up or how it had shown up in our collective past for all of us, we have these moments where we say it shouldn't have been like that, but maybe there's another way for a more gentle and honouring way for ourselves, for our hearts, for each other. So here is Gangaji today, here in New Zealand. We are so lucky to have her on our soil. She's going to talk with me on today's show. I will tell you at the end when her satsang, when her discussion, her korero are going to be taking place, but it's also on the site and you can see the dates. We're going to be talking about that night. We're going to be talking about many of her, of her korero, her satsang around the world. She travels and gives deeply of herself year in, year out to create a more loving environment on this earth. And I'm, I'm just deeply honored to have Gangaji here in Auckland in the studio with me. Welcome. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful introduction. Oh, it's beautiful lovely. To be here. And I want to address the fact that your gorgeous husband, Eli, yeah. was going to come. And there will be people saying, where is Eli? Yeah. Because he was going to do the third of the retreats, the Enneagram, which we'll address later. But he hasn't been able to join us. Mm, he, uh, he has a, a blood cancer and he has to get treatment for that right away. So unfortunately, he couldn't be here. But... There was never any doubt that I would be here. And your service to come here, most people would go, I'm sorry, I have to cancel it because my partner is not able to come. 
it's a, an act of the deepest service, Gangaji, and I think many of us found it very moving that you, you would know, come. I, I might have had the situation been different, but he's not suffering right now. He's it, it's just has shown up in blood tests. It's not that he's on his deathbed, and, yes. and I didn't leave him that way. So we both knew it was the right thing. And, and that suffering idea is the key to your lives, both mm -hmm. of you, mm -hmm. because there is a way, no matter what shows up in our lives, where we don't have to suffer as life shows up. Can you explain a bit of that? Well, I make a distinction between suffering and pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or just political pain, just the worldly pain, in that I, I think we do have to feel pain as creatures who have sensory organs. We have experiences, and some of them are painful. We have losses, and some of that's painful. We have sicknesses, and some of it can be painful. We have relationships breaking down. And, and that's very painful. Loss is use, loss of what we love, loss of what we care for is often quite painful. But the suffering, or rather maybe I should say the unnecessary suffering, is what we add to that pain. The narrative of the commentary of what should be, what should not be. So let's say, yes, we shouldn't have that, but we do have it. And if we can recognize that we do, that that's what we're experiencing, then we actually have an opportunity to open to that. And I'm not suggesting opening to get rid of the pain, opening and maybe there'll be more pain if you open, but just the willingness to stop commenting on it, to stop unnecessarily suffering, to stop adding to the pain. That is, that is a paradox in a society that is almost set up to avoid pain. Let's take a physical level mm. where we go to a doctor and say, I'm in pain, take it away. Mm. So it's, it's as if on an emotional level too, we want the pain to just go. We have a, a vast number of Kiwis on antidepressants. We have a vast number of Kiwi young suicides. It's heartbreaking. It's effectively people saying, I can't take the pain. I want mm. to avoid it. And we've, I've been there many times in my life. But something in there, are you saying, has a gift for us, a path? Well, let me say that sometimes medicine is quite appropriate. And yes. I have suggested that people go to a doctor and see about medicine or go to a therapist and get some psychotherapeutic work. But for most of us, our resistance to pain is the suffering. And so even if we do have to get medication, and certainly there are levels of pain where medication is needed, there's still this psychological pain of why me or the victimization yes. by the pain. And that's where we actually are torturing ourselves, contributing to our own suffering. And that's what I'm in your life for, is to let you know, to point that out to you so that you do have a choice, to let you know that there is choice there. You can acknowledge the pain, you can tend to the pain, you can change the pain or get rid of the pain, but you can also open to the pain. And yes, then there is a great opportunity. It's startling. And you've seen this many times in your work around the world where the person who is in such fear of experiencing their own inner turmoil mm -hmm. stops experiencing that fear and experiences the turmoil itself. Yes, I would say the turmoil is quite often an avoidance of the fear. And the fear is usually about losing something. I mean, our ultimate fear is the fear of death. 
or we'll lose this life. And we love this life, even if we're in pain a lot with it and there's a lot we may not like about it. We don't want to lose it. We don't want to die. We're made to not want to die. That's just the way we're programmed. And that's the ultimate loss. So all these other losses that appear in a normal life, loss of health, loss of youth, loss of relationship, loss of career, loss of success, whatever it may be, that's, that is, that's little death happening all the time. And each one of them then, each of these losses, is an opportunity to be willing in that moment to die. And that's what most humans are busily trying to avoid, uselessly trying to avoid, because we will die. And in fact, we have lost. Much has been lost. And if we're willing to meet that openly without this commentary and without this hope that meeting it will make us not lose it, <laughs> then there is a great discovery. And it's right here. It's really discovering the truth of who you are. So much in that answer, so much beautiful, fertile soil, because the the discovery is a very individual one. This is not mm. a pat, formulaic thing, is it, Gangaji? Each person who comes up on that stage and is welcomed by you makes their discovery to their level of their comfort in that moment. Over the years I came to see you, there were there were satsang, there were corridor where I really got something mm. and I opened. There were others where I struggled. Mm. There were others where I thought, I've gone back from last time mm. when I saw her. But each time I knew that I was making little openings in mm. myself. That's really what this is mm. about. It's very gentle. Mm. It, it can be. Very it can gentle. be. <laughs> here it's very gentle. For but me, there, I've found There it. is a kind of ruthlessness that has to happen where you're willing to take responsibility for how you're contributing to your own suffering. And through that, the suffering of the world, the suffering of the planet. And that's a moment of retreat, a moment of actually opening your mind to, in fact, what you are saying to yourself about anything, relationship, the world, your personal pain. And then to recognize that in that moment of seeing discovery, what you are saying, you actually have a choice to stop saying anything, to stop giving your attention to, to your commentary about pain, and instead just give your attention to the full experience, pain, bliss, joy, whatever it may be, just to lose the commentary for a moment, to suspend it. It's natural to think. We're human beings, we're thinking creatures. But we don't realize that we are not compelled to think, that we actually can choose to stop. Retreat, I think, is what it is. And this is my teaching, my offering really comes from my teacher, Papaji, and his teacher, Ramana Maharshi, who had to face death. He just was overwhelmed with the fear of death. And he lay down on the floor and he actually faced that rather than running to the priest or running to meditate or drinking something or being distracted. He just, as a 16-year-old boy, chose to lay on the floor and experience death, and he awakened. He recognized his body would die, the person he thought he was would die, personality, the life experiences, 
the history of that person would die, it would become nothing. That he would lose everything. Everything would be lost. Wow. What, in that discovery of everything being lost, he discovered what could never be lost. And that's the truth of who he is, and it's the truth of who you are. And so my role is actually very simple. It's to invite you to that, to support you in that, and to challenge you in that, to, to recognize that the truth of who you are is life itself. The life that animates your form and that at a certain point in time will no longer animate your form, was before your form and during your formation and after your dissolution. This is your yourself, conscious life, conscious awareness. And I don't mean it in a metaphysical kind of way of, <coughs> excuse me, life after death. It's, it's very simple. It's that now in your life there is this ground of being that is fulfilled and actually in bliss in the midst of the pain, regardless of the pain. Oh, it's so beautiful. I remember, I remember a, a beautiful quotation I read that said, being at peace is never to be in a, in, a, in a place where there is peace all around you. It's to be able to be at peace in the midst of the worst chaos, in the midst of the worst breakdown of a relationship, mm -hmm. as you say, or a job, but still access that peace. Yes, and it's not, it's not that it's a technique for getting rid of the pain. It's actually opening to the pain. Mm -hmm. I mean, a pain, say, in a relationship lost, and the deep grief of that is really connected to the love. Can you explain that? Well, we don't grieve losing what we don't love. If it's something we don't like, we lose it. We're actually quite happy to lose it. Yes. A bad habit, a bad job, a bad relationship. We're, we're relieved. We're happy. But when we love and we lose, then we torture ourselves. If you open to that losing, you will find the love is still here. The love doesn't come and go. The form of it comes and goes. Wow, if it's still here, it's not dependent on anyone around us or anything we earn or do or have. Yes, it's free, free of conditions. But that takes real investigation, and many people now are so busy. I mean, we have every distraction in our lives now, don't we? You get on a, a bus, and heads are down, and phones yes. are up, and people have less and less time sitting with, who am I within this busyness? Is that part of what you're inviting people? Yes, I will say there's a, a new Gangaji app, though. Oh, yes, that's <laughs> brilliant. Actually, I was going to mention that. Some volunteers put together. Yeah. It's, it's really designed that if you're on your device, that you can just go, and there are many meditation apps and different support. So the technology is here. Let us use the technology. I mean, we are using the technology in yes. this moment. Yes. And it's here, and the troubles are here, and death is here, and, and loss is here. Let's, let's face it and open to it and discover in the depth of our beings who we are, what cannot be lost. It's interesting, a while ago I mentioned that I find it gentle with you, but I know at times you have challenged me and I've been uncomfortable because my mind couldn't come up with answers, mm. and I've always 
with a legal background especially, I, I, if that training, it always makes you come up with an answer. Yeah. There were times up there I thought, I just don't have an answer for this. Oh, that's There's it. the release, isn't it? That's right. We are trained to have answers because having answers is a primary means of survival. And we are trained to survive. And yes, may we survive. This is not anti-survival. But there is a point where your mind can go no deeper, where no answer, even if it's the right answer and the legitimate answer, the spiritual answer, is not enough. It has to be direct experience, your direct experience. And that's why I invite people to come up and speak, because I'm not interested in this just being a teaching that, oh, that's good, I'm glad that's true, Mm. love is always here. It's how is it relevant to your life? Mm. How how does it make sense to your life in that we explore together so that you have a stronger capacity to explore on your own? There is something happening in this whole spiritual realm that um, is engaging not necessarily that deepest place, but more the human ego. I'll I'll give you an Mm. example of uh, a friend of mine who was told about the Bhagavad Gita and said, no, I know every spiritual book. That couldn't be a major one (laughs) because I've never heard of it. But the point of that story is, (laughs) the point of that story is the mind can also try to take over what it perceives as a spiritual journey and even there play its little dance with us. You're talking about a much deeper layer where through this, almost this gift of our own pain, Mm. we drop beyond the mind's little tricks and games and clevernesses, aren't we? We're dropping. The mind is designed to take it over. That's that's another mode of survival. And Mm. so it's not even wrong that the mind will do that. It's that's what it's made for, to conceptualize experience. But when we recognize that that's the way the mind is made, is to conceptualize experience, we can stop following the concept. It's like, oh yes, that's the concept. It's a beautiful concept, a true concept, but the direct experience is deeper. So then we are pulled back into not knowing, to having no concept of what is deeper that doesn't even make sense. And for that, you start with, well, what am I experiencing right now? And that's a very individual question. You, can, you have to ask that yourself. And already, that's direct experience. You may like what you're experiencing or not like it. That's irrelevant. That's the mind's commentary. But in your willingness to experience whatever you're experiencing, fully and deeply, you will find the ground of experience. And the mind's not separate from that. But it just can never control that, can never successfully conceive of that. So this is almost beyond words. Ironically, we're in a word yes. situation <laughs> here, but it is that feeling place. I, I, I think for those who remember the, the wondrousness of Mandela coming from that South mm. African prison, mm. nearly, nearly three decades in a prison for standing up for the black people in Africa, And I'll never forget his words, which to me are close to what you're saying. He said, they could take everything from me. They, even his eyesight in the quarries where they made him work, the white quarries. But I would not give them my soul. Mm. That's it. So this is what each of us in our lives, Mm. with the pains that show up and the seeming injustices Mm. and the seeming wrongs, we have that choice whether we give our 
That's us right. all and lose ourselves, or we say, no, I'll find something else here. That's it. Mandela is a great model for that, a great teacher. And, and how he ripened in that horrible situation of prison, hey, how he deepened because of his resolve to be free. And the burning pain he was in, and the oh, burning suffering, yes, it burned him. Yes, mm. and that burning, if, if not welcomed, I, don't, I wouldn't say, oh, I love my burning, but, but met. And that's, that's then a maturing force and a deepening force. And Mandela, St. John of the Cross, we have Martin Luther King, we have so many beautiful examples throughout history, the Buddha, the Christ. metaphor of Christ on the yes, cross, my it's, goodness. it's perfect. And feeling forsaken. And then the redemption that follows that absolute feeling of forsakenness. Then you're here. You've never been anywhere else. But it can't be manufactured. It can't be mm. described. It can't be fed to someone. That's it's, right. So why does your method work? And it's not a method. <laughs> why does your being with a person in that place, I, I, I will never forget the last time you and Eli came. In the last day, beautiful Eli said, there is something that happens in this room with all of us over two or three days that deepens it. Mm -hmm. And I could feel that, but when I tried to describe it to friends, the words deserted me. But it was the being in the room that actually helped. That's beautiful watching you online, mm -hmm. and I love that. But there is also an aspect of being with you in this satsang, this meeting, mm. that I feel has a, uh, a connectedness, an energy. I can't describe the words. Are you able to? I think it's a mystery, you know. I would mm. say it's true for everyone. Mm. So whoever is listening to this may feel no connection. <laughs> And or may feel a strong connection. It's a mysterious. Or may feel something later. Yes, after they've left. that's right. It's a it's not formulaic. It's mm. not. I can't say. I, I went to many teachers before I found my teacher, and I loved many of them, and I gained immensely from the different teachings. But when I met my teacher, I knew, ah, oh, I have to pay really close attention. And I think that that's what often happens in retreats. We're there for a specific issue, and that is to be free, to wake up, to discover what does not come and go. And so there's a power in gathering for that. All of our conversations that happen are happening in the context of that. And that's support for your own awakening. And there can be a sense of something calling. There may be mm -hmm. that person sitting on a bus listening to this mm -hmm. on the app saying, I feel like I am being called, I need to investigate this further. I would say to you, follow that. It's like the woman who said to me, come to that Sydney mm, Hall. Yes. I didn't even know who you were, but mm. I came without researching you, without doing it from my head. That's good. I just showed <laughs> up and I went, what is she talking about? And over the years, it's, it's mm. deepened. What, what do you think, uh, in, in terms of your calling to that teacher, was the knowing that you'd found your final teacher? Mm. Well, I think that's the mystery, you know. He was a beautiful man. Really this is Papaji. This tall, is Papaji. Punjabi man. And he opened his door and he said, Welcome. And, I, and he had his arms open, Welcome, come in. And I saw that was sincere, first of all. It wasn't just a ritual. 
and I fell in love. Wow. And so, plus I had heard something about him, so I, I understood something that he was, he was a master teacher, and I, you know, I was ready to meet him for that, and it worked, it clicked. And it's not the falling in love that most of us are looking for. This is far beyond that. This what is that falling in love, Gangaji? Oh, I don't know how to describe it, you know. I loved my father very much. But, and our relationship was really wonderful. We had our hard times, but we were bonded. And, but Papaji was like a father giving me something my father didn't have to give. And I recognized he was offering it so wholeheartedly. Come in, this is yours. Take it, feast. And it was shocking. And then really all that I had to do was recognize how I was denying it or pushing it away or trying to conceptualize it or get him into a particular relationship. And he, all of that would just fall away. And he would just say, just be still. Tell the truth. Who are you? You know that still your eyes shine when you talk about oh, him. Oh, yes, yeah. it's still alive. It's you know, very he, he died in 1997, but what he pointed to is what does not die. And that's true in my depth of experience and yours and in everyone listening. It's, it's the life that is conscious of itself. There was a period about three or four years ago with my divorce, I was in a really dark place. It was three in the morning. I got up, I listened to you, and then I went, I'm going to find something online about Papaji, and I found some beautiful pictures, and yeah. some. there are some lovely footage as well. And I just took some photographs on my phone of him smiling. Seriously, I, I've never met him, mm. and I won't now in body, but that smile is so warm mm. and so all-encompassing. I can touch something of what you're saying. It must have been incredible to meet him. Let's go back to the lineage because you did refer to that. Ramana, also an mm. unbelievably kind face, mm. just almost not human. Mm. He's just shining with love, isn't yes. he? Yes. So what was his story? Can you encapsulate a bit of this lineage that's come through these two, well, Papaji and Ramana? Just briefly, he was a, a regular kid and his father died uh, living in India as an Indian kid. He was not particularly religious. He had some religion studies, but he, he liked to play sports. That was his main thing. He was 16 years old, and his father died. And, and he experienced, uh, in that time period, a great fear of death. And that's when he actually chose to just lay on the floor and experience that fully, to discover what dies. And he, his body felt like it was going into rigor mortis. And, he had a mystical experience, uh, and an experience that waked him up from his life. And from that experience, he actually stole his brother's school money and ran away wow. to Tirvanamalaya, where Arunachala is a holy mountain. And he had seen the name in a book, and he knew he had to be there. And his mother finally found him there, and he begged him to come back, and he, he had to be there. And he spent 11 years in silence. In a cave on in the a mountain? Cave, yes, and this is a 16-year-old boy, runaway homeless kid, in silence with other kids taunting him, throwing rocks at him, being bitten by mosquitoes and other vermin, and just in silence in the bliss of his own self-knowledge. And then after 11 years, he began answering questions when people 
would answer because he was starting to be recognized as holy. And there's a tradition for that in India where people are recognized to have touched a mystical depth of being. And from that an ashram grew up and he, he lived until the 50s. I can't remember what the exact date is. But Papaji met him, <coughs> ended up coming to see him and it's a great story. I'll just tell you that. I don't know if you have room to include it. It's a wonderful it story. Yeah. So Papaji was searching for a, a teacher. Uh, he had had beautiful experiences of Krishna appearing to him and he would dress as a uh, a milkmaid, a gopi, and he would dance with Krishna, but then Krishna would leave and he would mourn Krishna and he wanted Krishna to come back. His mother was a Krishna bhakti too. And, and so he was looking for a teacher. He, he was a grown man, he had a family, and he was getting, he was an engineer, and he went to different ashrams, and different teachers would tell him different things, and he got... Ashrams are just teaching centers. Yeah, really. teaching centers, yeah. and he got no satisfaction. And then someone um, came, uh, someone came up to him and said, what you want is in Tirvanamalai, come there. And so he he figured why not, and he made his way to Tiruvannamalai, which is in the south of India. He was in the north of India, and and he saw this man sitting on a couch, and it was the same man who had told him to come there. In his dream, in his, in you know, he didn't know it was a dream then. He thought it was real, and he thought, what a charlatan! This guy's going out and drumming up business to come here. <laughs> and so he was leaving. He said, "This is not what I want." And somebody stopped him. He said, "You just got here." And it took you a lot to get here. Why are you leaving? And he said, well, that man came to me in Delhi and told me to come here. And what kind of guru is that? It goes out drumming up business for him. And the man said that he hasn't left here of a nomina in the last 50 years. So you must be mistaken. And then Papaji realized it was, it was a vision. It was a yeah. dream. And he, sta he stayed there. And he finally got an opportunity to ask Ramana a question. And he said... He reported on his dancing with Krishna and his extraordinary experiences with Rama and Sita. And, and he said, but how do I keep that? And Ramana was very silent for a period of time. And he said, gods that come and go are ultimately useless. Find out what does not come and go. And uh -huh. in that moment, it, that was the first thing that Papaji had heard from any teacher that actually was deeper than his own experience and he recognized oh i stay here and he stayed there for five years and just drank in the the grace and the, the self-inquiry which is really turning your mind's attention to whatever you're experiencing and discovering what's deeper than that till finally you recognize what does not come and go is who i am Oh, it's hard to even talk after that, actually. It's beautiful. And that idea of connection with these gods, albeit the ones that come and go, for those doubters, many of us as children had a sense of other worldly connections. That It, it comes to children effortlessly. Often adults used to go, I don't talk nonsense. I think it's happening less so now. I think we're recognizing in these new generations there's a lot of connectedness to things mm. beyond A, what we can explain, B, the, the earth, the mm. earthly 
dimensions. There's the quantum physics field as well. Everything mm. is energy. Mm. So opening to these ideas, even if they're a little uncomfortable, opening to the possibility, playing with them, is a beautiful start to, a, to an exploration, isn't it? Well, you know, when we say gods that come and go for Papaji, being an Indian man at that time, Krishna was a god, and Rama was a god, Sita was a goddess, but our gods could be success or health yes. or perfect relationship. Chasing money. Those gods yes. come and go. <laughs> you mean buying a big Maserati? Yes. I could lose it? You could lose it. <laughs> so those gods, very good for the West. And those things we all know in our heart of hearts are fleeting. We cannot take any of that, no matter how rich we are, no matter how much power we have at the moment. Trump one day will lose all of that power. <laughs> All of it will go for all of us mm. and what is left. That's it, what is left. That's so the getting to that, I, I love this lineage. So, so then you meet Papaji, you felt something move so deeply in you. Despite all your work that you'd done, it was the same thing. Something is moving mm. deeper than anything I've done. Mm. Was it the same for Eli? Did he have the same? Oh, yes, actually Eli found Papaji first. He had gone to uh, India on a quest for some teacher and... He was actually trying to get to a Tibetan that we had met uh, earlier, and he was waiting for a visa, and he happened to be waiting in Delhi, and he was sent to Lucknow, which where, is where Papaji lived, and he was waiting to get the addresses of some Sufis that he thought he would be able to go meet. Sufis are wise men who yeah. gone to India. Yes. And Muslim wise men. And he just remembered that there was a teacher here that an American had met that and he called me to say what was his name and I gave him the name and he looked him up in the phone book <laughs> so it can be quite practical it can be very, very practical and he ended up uh, Papaji had just gotten out of the hospital he had been ill and Eli was with him by himself for five days just sort of tending him along with Papaji's family there and and he would write me these letters and Really, these letters were vibrating that I would get. I just, these were not just ordinary envelopes with letters. And I knew that was such good news. And then I would read it. This is the real thing. This, you've got to come right away. This is extraordinary. Wow. This is, will change everything. And, and Eli wasn't necessarily given over to that sort of highly expressive language. I mean, he had done a lot of things himself, hadn't he? And he'd gone yes. down many paths. So this wasn't just a naivety. No, we had both recognized independently and, and together that we needed something and we didn't know what it was. That we had great experiences. We had a very successful life at that time. I was practicing acupuncture and he was doing his NLP therapy. And But even though we were happy, there was something undone. There was something calling. And we didn't know what it was. We knew somehow we needed a teacher. And so we were looking for that teacher in very different ways. And and so he took it very seriously when he saw him also. He saw him and he was able to eat with him and be close to him. And it was it changed everything. It turned our lives right side up. How lucky that we were together in this, but really, when I look at my life before meeting Papaji, it was, as I've said in other places, it was essentially a story of suffering, with some good news here and there, and some su definitely success and good relationship, but 
the undercurrent was a story of suffering, and that story disappeared because it had no place to land, to attach to. It's beautiful getting back to the gods, the modern gods that people follow. I was discussing this this morning with a friend. There is no money for the person whose god is money. There is no amount of money that is enough. There is, I've got another million, but I could have another 10 million if I worked twice as hard. That that illusory god taunts and teases us, and we think just a little bit more and more hours at work, or I said about the car, now I can get a bigger car. Or... I quite like my wife, but I think I'll get a <laughs> different wife or different I like this partner. Yeah, a different <laughs> model. But how do we face that in ourselves that ultimately the the exploration of ourselves, and it is a spiritual exploration, and there is a sort of fear in it, a, 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 a fear in New Zealand at the moment, you'll find a lot of people apologizing almost if they have spiritual mm. tendencies. It's become quite a secular society. Mm-hmm. And that was under Helen Clark. She was openly secular. Mm-hmm. She didn't want mm-hmm. that. And I, I came back from Australia and felt a shift in New Zealand society. Mm-hmm. A lot of people apologize for that. And yet quietly in our rooms, we often think, is there something more mm-hmm. than just what I'm chasing and being? Mm-hmm. So how do you answer that when people say to you, do we need to have a spiritual foundation for our lives, Gangaji? It depends on what you want. You know, if, if what you want is more of what you are accumulating, it, I don't think this would appeal to you. Mm-hmm. But if you are called, as we said earlier, if you want really to be free, absolutely free of the tyranny of false gods, Beautiful. of the tyranny of our own mind, concepts of how we should be and what we should have and then that desire for freedom if you listen to it it will it will reveal to you where you need to be what you need to hear just as Ramana had to be, go and be at the foot of a mountain mm-hmm. to meditate just as Papaji had to go find teachers just as as we happen to be sitting here speaking as as we met when you needed to hear something important in your life. Because the tyranny of false gods, I mean, it's destructive. And and that's when we are willing to tell the truth about what we want, what we really want these lives to be about, what, what we could say on our deathbed, this is what my life was about. Was it about serving a false god? Or was it about freedom and truth and what we mean when we say a spiritual life. Mm. And great courage within that. Great courage and great, within that. great support. And great support. Enormous support. Support from all corners of the universe. Explain that. How have you there seen There are people it? all over who want that, who mm. want to be free, who want to serve in the deepest sense, not necessarily help, but to serve freedom, to, to live freely. To live truly and authentically. To live honestly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and to live happily, Mm -hmm. joyously. So in in that, in that desire, you are supported. If you never meet that person, that person's desire for freedom is your desire for freedom, and you're supporting each other. That's so beautiful, and how it must enrich a relationship instead of looking facing the other person saying, you give me what I want, you give me what I'm missing. The two in the relationship look out to mm. 
if you like the source, uh, mm. another place that they have to find mm. each of them, and and how has that enriched you and Eli as a relationship? I mean, you loved each other before. We but did, but it kept us together. <laughs> I would say it really did because it was bigger than our relationship. Beautiful. Our desire for truth was bigger than. Uh, the ways we didn't get along with very different type people and and we would try to leave each other at different times and something would just pull us back and it was really this this that is bigger than our relationship that our relationship is in service to oh beautiful so you have a, a foundation now for a different kind of marriage and friendship and yes and, and I would say really since meeting Papa G that was relatively true before, but after meeting Papa G, it was absolutely true. The friendship that is there. I mean, I'm not saying you would necessarily stay with your partner. You might not. I have nothing against leaving your partner if that's appropriate. But the loving friendship doesn't come and go. The support for each other's awakening. And yet, within this, there's also room for us as human beings to fall and be <laughs> yes. imperfect. We're not talking about fake perfection in any way here. This is real human life playing out, isn't it? And we have yes. imperfections, we humans. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This is not an We're not sitting up fault. Yes. Yes. I, I think idealism is one of the ways we torture ourselves. And we can have ideals, but once it becomes a religion, your ideals become your idealism, then you're not free. You're bound to these pictures of what you think relationships should be or you should be or, or the world should be. And it can be subverted at any moment. So these satsang where we sit with you and we drop into more honesty each time mm -hmm. we see you, it, we go from there and we can go, okay, I can practice a more mm. honest relationship with myself. Where am I doing the phony stuff? Where am I trying to trick myself? Where am I being That's real? It. Those are real questions. And, the, and so then the opportunity is to tell the truth. What about failure? We have this terrible fear of failure in society, don't That's we? It's death. It's a fear of death. Yeah. Failure is death. I mean, the, our primary impetus is to live and we know that at some time we will die and that's the failure and so all the little failures that happen the, the loss if failure is loss again and so if you're willing to recognize I failed or I am failing and actually open to that because it may be actually true you may be failing in your marriage or in your job or in your spiritual search but to tell the truth about that failure and to open to failure then failure is not the boogeyman. Failure is actually a conduit to what is untouched by success and failure. What's oh. free of both. It's so beautiful. As a, as a parent, I'd love you to help me then mm -hmm. with some of the greatest gifts I could give my teenage, or post, just post-teenage children. The, is, it a, is it a fearlessness around failure? Mm. I like that word, fearlessness. And fearlessness doesn't mean lack of fear. It just means that, that fear has no control over your life. That yes, many situations generate fear appropriately and often inappropriately. And so just the willingness to let, yes, fear is there, fear is there. But it, it doesn't dictate your life. 
such a dichotomy as a mother, because you're a mother. Yes. Because I have the tiger mother in me who wants to protect my children from pain, and I've utterly failed at that because life can be painful. Yes. But there is another part where I do recognize the pains that they've gone through in different areas of their lives do ultimately serve them as they serve me. Yes, there's pain is not the enemy, and fear is not the enemy. The enemy is what we do with pain and fear in our commentary, what it means to us. And, and then we dissociate from the actual experience, and we wonder why our lives feel dead or, or empty or lifeless or inauthentic. One of the classic dissociations that I've observed in, in, in my own life and in, in, in people, the lives of people around me who are in pain is the blaming dissociation. Oh. It's your fault that yeah. this is happening is one of the, the really sticky traps humans can fall into, isn't it? Yes, it's some kind of attempt to manage the yeah. pain. And so if, if I'm the victim of this, then you did this to me. It doesn't work, of course, but it's just an attempt to somehow control, manage. What about someone who's doing that at the moment, someone who's going through a marriage breakdown and saying, it's all your fault that I'm going through this? Mm. Where, 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 where can they begin? Let's take a concrete example. Well, I think always where you have to begin is what do you want? And if really what you want is to find blame, find out whose fault it is. Maybe that your partner is a really wretched partner <laughs> and did do a lot that did wreck the marriage. Yeah. But so what? What do you want for yourself? Yes. And when you really answer that you want to live freely, joyfully, truly, then it's not that it's irrelevant what your partner did, but the conversation about you being a victim is a distraction from your own liberation, from your own freedom. So it's a story that may be accurate in lots of ways and may need to be spoken. But if it's, if it's clung to, then it's, it's in the way. And it's self-destructive. Yes. It's never going to give the person who's blaming any joy, as you say, any happiness, anything. Yeah, it's uh, unnecessary suffering. And we cannot control the other. <laughs> no, we learn that. Yeah. Let's take Implicitly, that. we can't. I mean. Let's enlarge that to a political level. Mm. Many people in agonies over what they're seeing in America with the world leadership, supposed world leadership, seeming to be defiled in many ways, the yes. environment. Panic, fear, a sense of hopelessness at times I'm seeing in some of the threads that I read online. How, how do you help people with those sorts of fears? Well, you know, I mean, I'm distressed about the <laughs> leadership in America, and I think we're in a precarious time. I don't know if it's more precarious than it's been before, but it's more obviously mm. precarious and dangerous time. And, and civilizations have fallen throughout time. Beautiful, flourishing civilizations have ended, have imploded. So I don't know if we're at that time or not. And if, if we are, I am in pain about that. I mm. grieve that. I don't want to lose democracy. I don't want to lose freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. But there's something bigger than that, too. So I marched in the Women's March the other day and really loved that. It's, it was a Women's March, just about women marching, I guess, all over the world. But it was also an anti-Trump 
what march and so i value living your life speaking as you you feel called to speak but i wouldn't say as i do feel distress about trump but it doesn't define me it doesn't actually touch my joy and i do feel distress about the planet but i i'm not contributing to the distress about the planet by my own personal distress so you stay effectively in a place that is love that is i don't stay there because it's not a place there's nothing else separate <laughs> from who of i course. am and i have moods uh, you know i can have all all the moods anyone else has i'm a human being so I have likes and dislikes and opinions and moods, and so I'm not inviting or suggesting that that's the goal. If the goal is telling the truth, and the goal is to recognize when you are suffering unnecessarily, and in that to stop suffering unnecessarily, and to open to what's already here, regardless of the situation, the dire situation that may also be here. And that's why that answer where you say, I don't stay in a place, mm -hmm. is so crucial because you are never not in that place. And you too. And me too. Yeah. And this is the place to discover. That's it. That's your true nature. Wow. One's true nature. But the mind is constantly dichotomous in telling us, well, I'm happy today. No, I'm not happy today. And what's still here? I mean, the mind has to be a part of this. So that's what inquiry is, is asking the question. I'm not happy today. I was happy yesterday. What is still here that didn't change, that didn't go away? It's so exciting. Mm. It it's, is. So it's exciting. so exciting. And, and the more we talk and the more you make these beautiful offerings, the more I, I want to say to myself, just shut up, Liz, and sit with that. <laughs> It's something really to mm. meditate on. I mean, this is, people say I've meditated for half an hour today, but really meditation is a being with these sorts of ideas as we're washing the dishes, as we're mm. driving the car, as well, we're, it's... I would say it's really recognizing what you are meditating on as you watch the dishes, as you, as you drive the car. What is your meditation? Because you're meditating on something. Is it, you know, what that driver in front of you is doing wrong or how late you are or who's victimized you today, that becomes your meditation. So, and that's a meditation of tyranny. So to withdraw from your habitual meditation and to simply open your mind. To what is here, yes. what is here under what all is that. always here. Oh, I love it. There was a beautiful quotation I found on, online because I do recommend um, the Gangaji app. There are beautiful Papaji clips on there. The, the site is B with Gangaji. There's a webcast. You say, I invite you to consciously, simply, effortlessly recognize yourself as that which you are seeking. Ah, yes. That is so beautiful. Mm. But when you first read it, it's like I'm already, I'm seeking something and I am already mm. it. This is circular. This mm -hmm. is, That's this right. makes the mind melt down a bit, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Yes. The Indians and many other cultures call it the monkey mind, and mm -hmm. there's a reason for that. Why is that? This this mind we have. You know, it's a survival machine. So it's always grasping and holding what is perceived to be advantageous for survival. That's its nature. 
and leaping from idea monkeys to are idea. Monkeys intelligent. You yes. Know? We are monkeys. We come from monkeys. So, so that's, that's part of what we have. We can see that reflected in, in a monkey and, and the intelligence of leaping from branch to branch and changing course and stopping and going. But to, to go deeper than that, to have a moment where survival is not the primary focus of that moment. I, I love survival, as I've said, and I'm happy we've survived. But now what? Now you have survived. Will you just replay the survival habit, or will you take a moment? Oh, Papaji said it takes one-twelfth of a second. To, to what? In, to investigate the wow. truth of who you are. Because that's an interesting one in the spiritual journey. A lot of people feel it's going to take years. People talk about lifetimes. Mm. I'm... I'm trying to get there, but it can happen in this moment it that somebody drops into who they already are. You are already that, and all the rest is is an institution. This is—it's not even a teaching, really. It's simply an invitation to stop what you are practicing in this for one moment. To stop what you're meditating on, wherever you are, in one moment and tell the truth about what is always here. You've had many, many people who have had what we might call this awakening. There's a beautiful story that never left me from one of your satsang, one of your meetings. You go into prisons in America. You go through the humiliations of all the searching of Mm -hmm. all the body parts for visitors and, and having to face all of that. And then you talk to the prisoners. And you had, you've had many who've, who've who've realized, had realization, you had one who really awoke in the prison Mm -hmm. in a moment. Can you tell us that story? I've always loved that story. I would say there are a couple. I'm not exactly sure what you are talking about. I mean, there's Kenny Johnson who has his own meetings now. It's that one. Goes back into prisons. And, you know, Kenny, when I met Kenny, he, he had been in and out of prison for like 30 years. And he was close to being what we had in America then of three strikes and you're out, you're in prison for life. If he, if he had done something and gone back in and he was getting ready to be released and he was really nervous because he had learned how to live in the prison life and he was really afraid of freedom that he would do something and, and turn back to crime and, and get caught and be in prison for life. And so there was a failure of his life that was actually an impetus for his willingness to deeply, deeply investigate, first of all, what he wanted, and then to receive what was being offered to turn his attention back. The story he tells is that I I said to him, similar to what you said about what you're seeking is already here, I said, grace never leaves you. It's always here. And he, it stopped him. You know, who can ever say how? I mean, it's a mystery how something works. But it worked, and he opened, and he recognized his freedom. And he did get out, and he hasn't gone back in, and he is serving others going in and, and working with the prison, different prison programs to, to help wake up people. And this is a young, when he first went into prison, he was a young black man pimping on the streets. He, you know, a, a kind of lifestyle we would have no idea about. But because his 
his deep intention, well, that's what unites us. Oh, it finally doesn't matter about lifestyle, doesn't matter about spiritual practice or accomplishment, doesn't matter about your failures. It's really, at this point in your life, what do you want? Oh, Kakaji, what a beautiful note to end on. Mm. I just can't thank you enough for coming in today. It's just, it's, this is what the satsang, the meetings, the korero with Gangaji, and we're Eli here, and we send Eli our love and our respect mm, thank you. Over, over the air and by you. But this is what it is to be in discussion in the satsang with Gangaji. So if you are interested, you can go to the Facebook page. It's called Living in Freedom, Gangaji and Eli, New Zealand Tour 2018. They don't come here. She does not come here every year, and we're very lucky to have her this year. There are public meetings where you can get a taste of it. This is like the public meeting I went to in Sydney that I spoke about in my introduction. That's on January the 30th and the 31st. From February the 2nd to the 5th, there's a Living in Freedom retreat, which really, in effect, means you go along each day to the, um, the venue, which is in Takapuna in Auckland. From the 9th to the 12th, there's the Enneagram retreat with Jared. Now, we have not got to the Enneagram, and... Um, that is something else that you can look up online. The way the corridor today went did not take us there. And then from the 16th to the 18th, there's a small group retreat, but that one is already booked out. So there's been a lot of demand for Gangaji time. Do join us, if you can, at the Tai Tamariki Hall, 8 Auburn Street, Takapuna, for the Living in Freedom, a beautiful quotation from Gangaji to finish. Something deeper is calling you. It's the call of your heart. Mm. Thank you, Gangaji. Thank you so much. <laughs>